You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Thank you, Joseph. You can be seated. How's everybody doing? I'm Brad. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the pleasure of talking to you about our core value of discipleship. This morning, and uh, it was, uh, well, just as we sung, um, this is why we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We owe all to him. We are, ooh, oh, hey. Side table. Super cool. Um, I'm going to use this one, too. Um, we, we owe all to Jesus. And we should be in awe of him. And that's why we're disciples of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So, we're going to discuss that third core value today. So, as some of you may know and some of you may not know, and regardless of where you stand on that issue, um, every August we take a break to do something we call Covenant Foundations. It's where we go back to our core values. We take a break from teaching verse by verse through the Bible, and we look at our core values, we look at what they stand for, and we... Uh, we just provide a refresher, and uh, you know, I hope that you've grown as much from the teaching that I have from, from Jared and from Daniel, and this, he will grow next week from Hank as he covers mission. Um, and but it's, been a, it's been a really good time to just take a break from the busyness of life and remind ourselves of who we are and, and to direct ourselves toward the target that we want to hit. So, speaking of a refresher, let's do a quick recap of our core values thus far. Ooh. Uh, here we go. So, as Daniel reminded us last week, all of these build on one another, right? We do them in an order for a reason. We teach them in an order for the reason. They're in an A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, however you want to enumerate them. Uh, but I, I, I want to read through them up to where we are right now. And if you can read, and um, if you can read the text on the screen as it's presented, uh, I invite you to say it along with me as I read them aloud. So here we go. The Bible. God has spoken in his written word and continues to speak through it today, calling believers to himself. Prayer. Constant, consistent intimacy with God preserves believers on earth and prepares them for heaven. Discipleship. Believers undergo lifelong transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the local community. So when read one right after the other, you can really appreciate the progression that these have. I mean, how can anybody believe without hearing the word? And the first appropriate response that a person has to hearing the gospel is a prayer of repentance. And this initial response is only the first step, and it has to be deepened through discipleship. And the overflow of a mature disciple is a mission, to spread the word that was once given to that person. And you can see how the cycle then repeats itself. So I also hope that you can appreciate, just as we step back from Covenant Church, and just appreciate how these are not just Covenant Church values. These are Christian values. They're values that we should have, as every Christian should have these among their core values. So today we're focusing on the third one, as we've talked about. So uh, where do we go to find out this information? The Bible. 
because we follow our core values very well. Uh, and also, for the same reason, uh, we turn and we pray and we ask for help as we do. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your son. We ask that you would guide our conversation, Holy Spirit, that you would loose my tongue and open ears so that we would hear what you have to say. And uh, as James wrote, that we would not just be hearers of it, but doers of it also. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today what I want to do is I want to take us through the entire Gospel of John. So hope you brought a sack lunch. It's, it's every preacher's joke to joke about how long they're going to be, but seriously. Um, so in, in doing so, I, I want to answer four primary questions. So these are the questions. Why discipleship? Why are we doing discipleship in the first place? What is discipleship? So, uh, excuse me. What is a disciple? Excuse me. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how can I be a disciple of Jesus today? Uh, so we're going to spend the majority of our time in the third one. And if you're furiously writing these down, don't worry. Like I, I have headers on the slides, so, so you'll get to them. Um, there's always this question when you're note-taking of whether or not you know, I write them all down or I like, leave a half a page so I can fit notes in and I don't have to draw arrows. So you're going to get them. Don't worry. So first the question is, why discipleship? And I have an answer to this, and it is a meme. Why discipleship? Well, it's this is the way. All right. So I can't confirm which elder model to this uh, today, but if you remember our past sermons, and maybe if you think really hard, you can, you can envision who might be inside that helmet. But Mandalorians don't take off their helmet in front of living things because this is the way. Um, now, I know that's a cultural joke. For those of you who don't know, this is a, a show about Star Wars, about a particular uh, type of culture called the Mandalorians. And whenever they come into contact with somebody questioning, well, why are you doing it that way? Or whether one of the, uh, I mean, frankly, disciples of the way asks, well, why do I have to do that? The, the teacher will look at the person or the person will look at the uninitiated and will say, this is the way. There is no other way to do this. So, and it does have some biblical backing, and I know that some of you have already made this connection, but in Acts, in several places, Christian believers are referred to as followers of the way. Um, so simply put, discipleship is the way of Jesus Christ. It was established by him when he came and lived among, wait for it, the disciples, right? So this is why we have discipleship as a core value, and this is why we, as well, uh, this is why we all as Christians should seek to be discipled and to disciple. Okay, so you get it. Why discipleship? Because Jesus. So in order to understand more fully what discipleship is, we have to ask ourselves the next question, what is a disciple? After all, you can't have discipleship without disciples. I think most of you could answer this question pretty easy, couldn't you? So, um, so let's do it. You're all very bright bunch. Uh, what's a disciple? Feedback. Not louder, come on. Yeah, students, I heard followers. All of that is correct. A disciple is a follower, a learner, an adherent to a particular way, right? See, I knew that y'all were smart. You got you to be bold. Say it out loud. Um, but you might also think of it as an apprentice, somebody who is, is, is learning and is moving along. So, uh, so it, that is all. It's, it's a very simple concept. Like, we all understand what a disciple is, but in its context, 
we may think of discipleship as a uniquely Christian idea, like when Jesus comes on the scene, he was doing something smash up new, but he was not the only one who had disciples. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist had disciples, and later in the Gospel, the Pharisees were self-professed, we are disciples of Moses, they say in 928. So this process of discipleship was well known in Jewish culture, but it was also established in a long period of time. This wasn't a new thing. If you remember the prophets of the Old Testament, perhaps you can remember Elijah and Elisha. See, you're smart people. I knew it. Um, Elijah and Elisha, right? Elisha was Elijah's disciple. And Isaiah also references having some disciples in his book. So still, this was not just a uniquely Jewish practice. Greek and Roman cultures also had this practice as well. Philosophers and thinkers, Socrates, for example, also had followings of pupils, and they called these people disciples. In fact, the, the Latin word for, for student is discipuli, from which we get the word disciple, as you can all hear. So there's a sense that when Jesus walks onto the scene and starts saying, hey, come here, buddy, and, and calling people to him, there's nothing revolutionary about that practice. So the question then becomes, well, if we know why we do discipleship, because Jesus did it, and if we know what a disciple is, we have to ask a specific question because it's a general term, and that is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So this is the longer part, and this is where we um, will go through the Gospel of John, and we're going to take a short trip through it. I know I promised a long one, so... I know you're all very disappointed it's going to be a short trip. So anyway, uh, but I want to reuse a phrase that Daniel used last week when he was stepping through the Lord's Prayer and, and talk about five heart postures that we see that categorize the disciples throughout the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot of ground to cover here. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here, so grab your pens and hold on. We start with the answer with this easy statement, disciples of Jesus, dot, 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 learn from Jesus. Now, this is a very simple phrase, but it is a very profound one, and it's much deeper than the plain meaning. So we see eight times that the disciples in the Gospel of John called Jesus rabbi, and that's the majority of times that this term is used in the New Testament, and it's the only book that uses it so frequently. John even kindly explains what this term teacher means and the first time it's used in chapter 1, verse 38, you can see it on the screen. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. But it's not just from Jesus' title as teacher that we understand the disciples as learners. We see occasions where the disciples look to him for guidance. And John, the most potent example of this is in chapter 9. The disciples are walking along, walking along, and they see a blind man. And they ask a genuine question to those of their day that other people also wrestle with. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, this is, this is a question of the day. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for silly such nonsense questions or giving themselves to fashionable whimsy of, of concern that people might have. He answers the question, and furthermore, he uses the opportunity of that question to teach them about who he is and who God is. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed to him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So from this interaction, I hope that you can get a vision of how this discipleship relationship works between Jesus and his disciples. As they travel along, Jesus may talk, offer a teaching, a parable, or they might see something, and they have a question. And throughout their normal, everyday interactions, Jesus would use those moments to teach them the truth of God, the truth of the world, and the truth of who he, Jesus, was and is. The comprehensive nature of this following is exemplified in the upper room when Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. And when he finishes them, he charges them with this, For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So now we've arrived at the core of this simple statement that disciples of Jesus learn from Jesus. It's not just learning from Jesus facts about God, but it transforms the entire life to be in a manner like his. To contextualize it, think about being an apprentice in any skilled labor field, right? So it, and the apprentice looks to the teacher for everything. That they, and he or she emulates what they do, how they place things, what, uh, what tools they use. This is precisely the kind of way that a disciple learned in every culture that we've talked about, and it is no different with Jesus and his disciples. Every breath, every step, every act is one to be done in consideration and to fall in line with the teaching and lifestyle of the one who is followed. And only with the totality of this learning, only when the totality of this learning is taken into consideration does a disciple fully grasp what it means to learn from the teacher. Now, this imitation, this learning is not just a one-to-one -one mirroring of what Jesus does either, but an active participation as a part of his ministry. The second point is disciples of Jesus serve with Jesus. John records that Jesus wasn't the one who did the baptizing, but it was actually his disciples. We read in chapter 4, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. The disciples were also key in accomplishing basic tasks of the ministry, like getting food. You might say going on a burger run, but anyway, I digress. Uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well was a one-on-one -on -one conversation because John records in chapter 4, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Now, it's not much, like it's not this gangbuster thing, but it does point to the fact that the disciples would run errands in order to support Jesus while he traveled and while he taught. Consider the, the fact that we know that Jesus and his disciples are purchasing food as a task in light of the feeding of the 5,000. So two chapters later, he asked this question. 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now certainly John is about to embark on the tale of a miracle, and we are explicitly told that Jesus already knows exactly what he is going to do and why he's asking the question. However, what strikes us is that this is still a very real question to the disciples, which is indicated by Philip's answer. He does not reply with some kind of scoff, like, oh, you want us to go get food? But with a very serious and rational response, Jesus, look, we can get bread for these people. That's not a problem. But the real issue is how much it's going to cost. And when it comes time for the cleanup, who does it but the disciples? And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Disciples of Jesus not only learn from him and imitate them, but they serve alongside and support his ministry. They walk with him and support what he does to help make it a success. Next, disciples of Jesus also care for Jesus' well-being. Now, turn back to chapter 4, where Jesus had sent the disciples into the Samaritan town to buy food. And when they return with the food, they're stunned at the sight of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. And they just say it there. But when she had left, John notes that, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. The whole reason they went on this bread run was because they needed to eat. Jesus needed to eat. All of them did. They want their master to eat because he would need the strength as they traveled around teaching. When Jesus uses this as an object lesson about being on a kingdom mission, though, he is not rebuking them for wanting him to eat. He knows that they care about him, but he wants them to understand that some things are more important than lunch. Well, we see this concern for the disciples again later in chapter 11. Jesus has just delayed two days in returning to raise his, sick, uh, his dead friend Lazarus. And when he mentions his desire to return to Judea, the disciples are immediately troubled. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? The disciples are students of their master, and they're students of the times around them. They know that a collective of political and religious Jewish elite people just tried to kill Jesus and are concerned it might actually happen if they go back. They want Jesus to stay healthy and alive because they love their teacher. All disciples care for their teacher in this way. Fourthly, disciples of Jesus hold fast to Jesus. Now, this point is about belief in Jesus, and I almost call it that, but it's a specific kind of belief. The belief of a disciple must be a dogged stick-to-itiveness, no matter the feeling or the circumstance. We see this in action in John 6, and we'll start with verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So that, that's a pretty long quote, but keep in mind that Jesus is addressing quite a large group of disciples at the outset, not just the twelve. Some have followed Jesus just a few hours ago, or the half day ago, rather, because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And some of those disciples that he's addressing have been following Jesus for a considerable amount of time. But regardless of how long they've been following, following the, him, the question is simple. Even if the teaching is hard, will you continue to follow Jesus? When Jesus directly confronts them with this question, many who were following him up to this point responded, you know what, Jesus? You're right. I do not believe. And they walked away. And when Jesus turns to ask the twelve a second time if they also want to leave, he is basically saying, can you accept the hard teaching? Now keep in mind, this question is not only a second question, but it's happening in the backdrop of this visible exodus of people leaving. I'm out. Will the twelve leave because the difficult teaching just as these people have done? Peter's answer to Jesus is derived from Jesus' own teachings just a few verses earlier. Jesus says to all the disciples in the face of his hard teaching, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And Peter responds to the question that they are the words of eternal life. Additionally, the reply shows that their resolve is not attached to Jesus' teaching alone, but also his personhood. You are the Holy One of God. This declaration has its roots in Jesus' earlier teaching. Jesus answered them in 629, This is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he has sent. The disciples here prove that they hold to Jesus and who Jesus says he is. Holding fast to Jesus' teaching is not an activity that can be done half-heartedly. To not hold to part of it is to not hold to it at all. Jesus says as much a few chapters later in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the word for to abide means to remain. And again, you're very intelligent people and you already know this. It's to be ever-present in the light of the word that Jesus has delivered to them. It's a binary choice. It's a category of you're in or you're out. And if you are in any way out, then you're totally out. Out is the answer. Also notice that this totality of abiding in the word also applies to truth and freedom. Uh, there, there is no such concept as a half-truth or a half-free person. In the same way, one cannot kind of or partly or halfway abide in Jesus' words and be his disciple. 
Now, this abiding language should also remind you of another passage later on in John chapter 15 where he teaches the disciples this. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, a branch is either attached to the vine or, or not. It is either fully supported and nourished by the vine or it is fully separated. It's cut off and it's burned up. So too a disciple holds fast to Jesus Christ and Christ alone or isn't attached at all. Now with this term abiding, we come to our fifth and final point for this question. Disciples of Jesus desire to be with Jesus. So after the prologue of the gospel, and we spend a lot of time on that talking about it, and rightfully so, but John immediately jumps from that into Jesus inviting people to come with him and see where he is staying. Next, he finds Philip, and he says, come and follow me. Throughout this and all the gospels, we are reminded that the disciples are with him constantly. Just a chapter after the call of the first disciples, we see this verse. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. It's in chapter, um, I think, 312. 2.12. Excuse me. Thanks, Zach. So here we have Jesus. And let's just say he's on a family vacation, and his disciples are just there. They're, they're chilling with Jesus, his mothers, and his brothers, right? So some of you with teenagers or, or, or you know, pre-teenagers or whatever, like you can relate to this, like the crew, right? The crew is always hanging around. They might as well be a part of the family because, I mean, they are just always there. You made three extra sandwiches on Saturday just because you knew that your son or daughter would have those friends in tow. Now, listen, you might love having them around, or you may wish they would just go away. But I digress from that point because I don't want to imply any kind of attitude that Mary or his brothers would have had towards Jesus and his disciples. And I just kid. I know that you love having the people around. But I do think that still this is a fair analogy and an image and that we can put into our minds to help get across how the disciples, especially the 12 disciples, stuck with him everywhere. Later in chapter 3, we see this. Jesus and his disciples went into Judean countryside. And Jesus himself pronounces in 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. The desire is reflected as well in the concerned responses of Peter and Thomas in Jesus' farewell discourse. Now, in this farewell discourse, this is Jesus' last address to his disciples before the crucifixion. And he informs them that where he is going, they cannot come. This is their reaction. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Thomas, in the next chapter, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Again, we know what comes after this statement by Peter. 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he is honestly communicating his great desire to be with Jesus. And Thomas is missing the point of what Jesus is talking about, but still, this question nags his soul on whether or not he will be able to find Jesus when he does go away. We again see Peter's fervency to be with Jesus at the end of the gospel when he realizes that it is Jesus on the shore. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, Peter threw himself into the sea. The, the word used here is the same word that, to describe how they were throwing their nets in the sea. It's to throw, to cast. Peter didn't, you know, put on his, uh, and then do this wonderful Olympic dive, right? He rushed over the side of the boat, all ugly style, right? His concern wasn't about his form and how he looked and what he did and if, you, you know, if the judges gave him a 10 or not, but it was about getting there as fast as possible. He threw himself into the sea. This is ultimately the desire of a disciple, to be with Jesus, to get there as fast as possible and by any means necessary. And not only in this life, but in the next. That's the reason that Jesus meets their anxiety in his farewell discourse that we just referenced with this promise as he prepares the disciples for his departure. This is Jesus speaking, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. For all eternity, Jesus says to his disciples that where I am you may be also. All of us have someone in our lives that we dare not live without a spouse, mother, father, brother, cousin, best friend. Perhaps for you, that someone has passed away. And I'm sorry. But especially you in this last category understand the deep yearning to be with that person for one more day. To sit. To talk. Watch a show. Read a book. Go fishing. Enjoy some activity with that person just one more day. That's the longing of a disciple for Jesus. Now, before we address our last question, I want to zoom out and take just a moment to appreciate that discipleship is the model that we have in the first place. It's because it's the model that Jesus, the Son of God himself, modeled for us. It struck me as quite the change from the sacrificial system from the Old Testament which was fresh on my mind, and I know it's on a lot of yours because we just studied through Exodus heavily and had great overviews of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You see, if God had wanted another religious order for us to follow, then that's what Jesus' ministry would have been. Instruction on new rituals, delivering new codes, outlining new customs, maybe some new clothes, instating new sacrifices, and all the other supporting elements but that's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus came and walked with humans on the earth for 30-some-odd years. And this is the first time that it's happened that God walked with human beings since Genesis 3. He ate with them. He cried with them. He walked with them. He laughed with them. He was human with them. Not only that, but he taught them, men and women, about how to live. He showed them God the Father in word and in deed. 
He explained to them how he was the Messiah from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament now, but the scriptures. During this time, he appointed 12 special disciples to oversee the continuation of this work. The, the culmination of that ministry was an even closer walk as the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to indwell him. In chapter 20 of John, he said, you see this, when Jesus reappears to the disciples, and when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus no longer was beside them. Jesus dwelt inside them. Then what did they do? They made disciples. Who made disciples? Who made disciples? And those people made disciples and so on. Until here we are. Discipleship's how we get here. I know and I think that you do as well that it is easy to take this core value for granted. It's hard work. But we talk about the importance of Bible reading and of praying and, and evangelizing, spreading the word, but we often skip the importance that deep-rooted, maturing discipleship plays in this core value chain. Half of this disregard is rooted in our own cultural individualism. Me and my Bible reading and my prayer time are not enough to develop a fully mature disciple. You see, if, if that was enough, Jesus would have lived as a hermit, wrote a whole bunch of books, and then gone and died. And then we would have the books, and that's how we would live. But that's not what he did. He made disciples. This individual focus turns a blind eye to the great chain of discipleship that has led to our own calling. The other half of contempt toward this core value is displayed in this. We substitute gathering together to hear a sermon for the richness of discipleship. Sermons are great. Sermons are good. They're appropriate. I'm giving one right now. But we fool ourselves if we think that we grow in faith by listening to good sermons. Reread the Gospels, and you will find that Jesus' sermons do not disciple his disciples. But they call his disciples to him and separate, as we saw in John 6, those true disciples from the false ones. Jesus preached a sermon, and then the questions came. He gave a parable, and then the questions came. That discipleship happened after the sermon, after the disciples, when they stuck around and they said, asked the question, what do you mean? It's through the relationships that hearers and the teacher that discipleship happens. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how else to emphasize this, but this is the way, and I know that it, it, it I know the meme, right? But I mean, it is the way. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not me and Jesus, but it is brothers and sisters walking together and locking arms towards eternity in the way of Jesus Christ. We must stop taking discipleship for granted. Recognize the great cloud of witnesses that came before and the brothers and sisters at your side today and engage in the discipline of discipleship. We need you. You need us. So with this sincerity, we'll turn to the last question. How can I be a disciple of Jesus today? I want to offer three words of encouragement to answer this question as we close. My first encouragement is this. Do not restrict where discipleship happens. Most of you think that this is the right time to start driving community groups here, and you're right. And I will. 
If you're not a regular member of a community group, you're missing out. Ask about it. However, discipleship happens in the kids' ministry every Sunday. It happens with our equip groups. It happens at our prayer gatherings on Wednesday. It happens in the new music jam sessions that we have on Thursday. The grilling team, whenever disciples of Jesus are together, that's the time and that's the place for discipleship. Nevertheless, don't restrict discipleship to just the church. You know fellow brothers and sisters in your professional life, right? Disciple one another. Do you have people in your workplace or friends who are not yet brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Pray for them. When you're hanging out with friends, use that time. Most importantly, we should start with discipleship in our own homes. Many of us have children, and I myself have young children, as many of you do. How can we expect them to know the way of Jesus Christ if we don't take this core value seriously in the home? And make no mistake, our children and even ourselves, we're all being discipled into something. We are all being taught and we choose the people to follow and live after that like manner. And if we don't take this seriously, where are those kids going to end up? This is why it's all the more imperative that we, just as Jesus was, are intentional about how discipleship fits into any relationship or conversation that the Father places in our lives. If we want to believe that God is sovereign, and he is, then God has placed those people in your lives. He's put those random conversations in your lives. The second encouragement is this. Don't overcomplicate what discipleship is. This is something that, that, that Tori holds me back from um, quite a lot. We've seen in, what we've seen in John can be summed up in this way. Discipleship is building relationships that grow faith in Jesus Christ. Discipleship is building relationships that grow faith in Jesus Christ. Discipleship is eating together. It's laughing together. In today's lingo, I mean, do they even use this lingo anymore, but I'm going to use it. It's hanging out. I don't know. That, that, may, be, that may be so 2010. But it, it, it's that, but it's, it's not, that's not everything, right? When we gather together, we read the Bible, we pray for one another, and we sing collectively the praises of our God. So we carve out time to ensure that these important things are not missed, because without them, it's just a social club. In the fabric of everyday life, and through the practice of these disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, singing together, questions arise and are answered. Corrections are given. Don't live that way. And lives are changed. Hearts are encouraged and eyes are focused. And disciples grow in the way of Jesus Christ. So don't overcomplicate it. Lastly, my final encouragement is this, that he has provided you everything we need. And I say this to myself. Stop looking for that magic how-to book of bleeding-edge methods on how to elevate your spiritual life to the next level. It's this. You have everything that you need. The Spirit, the Word, and each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same Spirit that Jesus breathed on the disciples and the very one that rushed into the upper room in Acts chapter 2 lives in you. And he dwells in you richly. Jesus tells his disciples, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's how we have the Gospels. Speaking of the Gospels, we have the Bible. 
which is the word of God, and it was preserved by that self-same spirit to teach us what is true about ourselves and the God who created all we see. And finally, we have each other. When Jesus sent out his disciples and other gospels, he sent them two by two. And at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus didn't appoint a successor, but a group of men who were taught the way. They could encourage and correct one another along the way, and they did. And by God's grace, we should endeavor to continue in this great work. He has provided everything that we need. He has provided you everything that you need to practice the discipline of discipleship. I, I want to close. Oh, we're going to take communion. Uh, if you have one, if you don't have one, raise your hand, um, and we can get it to you. Now, if you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, um, if you are his disciple, we encourage you to participate in this. This is one of the sacraments that Jesus put in while he was on this earth. Uh, if you're not, we ask that you refrain, and you come talk to us about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But um, I, I wasn't planning on doing this this morning, but uh, Hank sent me a text message. He's like, communion? I said, nah, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I wanted to do it for this reason. Because while this is a very, it's, it's a sacred thing. Remember where it happened. Over a meal, in an upper room. It was an object lesson. And it was an object lesson that referenced the very difficult teaching that we just talked about in John 6. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you're not my disciple. And so on the night when Jesus was to be turned over, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. What do you mean, Jesus? This is my body. This is my object lesson. We're here doing life together. This is what it means. And in just a few hours... They would understand exactly what he meant. It's broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. This is my cup of the new covenant. I will not drink the, blood, the fruit of the vine until I come to my kingdom. Drink it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So you can take and eat. You can take and drink. And we get this wonderful phrase as we do this together. In doing so, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus until he returns. That's what discipleship is. Everyday people doing everyday things and helping them to grow in faith. So, let's stand and let's worship. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.